0: gladsome light of the holy glory of the immortal Father, heavenly holy blessed Jesus Christ, now that we have come to the setting of the sun, and behold the light of evening, we praise God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for me, it is at all times to worship you with voices of praise, O Son of God and Giver of life. Therefore, all the world
1: glorifies me.
0: Father Jeffrey, we're starting a new
1: series on Glad Some Light today. Excellent. One of the best things across all of our liturgical tradition is this evening hymn. Exactly.
0: It is uh, perhaps the central point of, of Vespers. It is the evening hymn, the sunset hymn. And we are recording this preview episode after we have actually recorded the entire series. And to be honest with you, our listeners... We recorded that series long before we recorded this preview episode. So, we might actually forget what we actually talked about in the actual series, but we're hoping that in this episode we'll go through uh, each of those lenses that we look at each part of the Vespers through and maybe talk about one of the big things that comes to mind in that in that um yeah, in that section. So, Father Jeffrey, maybe let's just start with that biblical context, or the bib- yeah, the biblical context. Um so O Glad some Light is a hymn. It, it's it's a hymn that's not in the Bible. So what could the biblical context possibly even be? Like there's no connection with, with the Bible.
1: Does that question make sense? It does. Uh but of course, as with a lot of our composed hymns that come kind of in a post-biblical time frame, the it's not very hard to detect all of the biblical imagery that that comes into play i mean clearly anybody who's going to compose a hymn in the orthodox liturgical tradition has the bible right in front of them and so even though it isn't from the scriptures, isn't from the New Testament, it nevertheless sounds like it could be, right? Because all of those layers of, of symbols and so forth, principally, of course, the symbol of light. And you know, we think of primarily maybe the Gospel of John, where the whole incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ as a man in this world is presented in terms of light coming into the darkness. And so if this is the point in the day when it's starting to get dark, what do we do when it starts to get dark? We turn to the true source of light, which, yes, during the daytime is the light is provided by the sun, but even that is a symbol, a sign, an icon of the true light, who is Christ. And so, it's a, it's a just, it's an exploration in a short, compressed hymn of Christ as the light of the world.
0: Mm-hmm. And and I think in this section uh, in the. Next episode, which is the biblical context episode, we do go through a bunch of different scriptural passages that talk about light, and we investigate uh, light, one of which I can bring up now, which is the song of Isaiah, "My spirit seeks you early in, in the morning for your commandments are a light upon the earth right so this this image of uh, you know Isaiah waking up early for the sunrise, but it 's not just the sun." That's shining and enlightening the world. That is actually the sun itself is a metaphor for God and His commandments. Um, yeah, could you speak a bit to that one, Father Jeffrey?
1: Well, yeah, we we do or will, <laughs> depending on uh, how you want to think of it, I talk a lot about how light itself, you know, from creation through to the use of the, the word light in the prophets, like that with Isaiah, is indeed always somehow symbolic of God's presence, God's creation, you know, his ongoing creation in the world, and, and also the commandments, the 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 covenant and the, the relationship and expectations of that relationship. So in fact, when you know the apostle John in his gospel describes Christ as the light of the world, it resonates with all of that. You know why is he the, the light of the world where he is the living embodiment of the one who keeps the commandments, keeps the Torah, who lives the fullness of the expectation that had been upon Israel amongst all the nations. And of course, later in Vespers, we're going to sing the, the hymn of St. Simeon, the Canticle of St. Simeon, where Israel is precisely called, you know, a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. And so it, all those things are are. You know, definitely overlapping and interlocking here, where you have the, the, all of the lights of creation, which are, are symbols of God's presence in the world, his presence, which is enacted primarily by relationship with him and keeping his law, which of course nobody's capable of doing until. He himself comes in the person of Jesus Christ and, and is the fulfillment of all that. He's the fulfillment of Israel as light. He's the fulfillment of Torah and commandments as light upon the earth. He's the fulfillment of the creational opportunity of calling human beings into existence. And he becomes, you know, the full light of what it is to be a human person.
0: Then we move on In we'll move on in a couple of weeks from now to the historical development of O'Gladsom Light. And it's my understanding that this is perhaps one of the more um, juicy parts of Vespers that we have a lot of kind of evidence for in, in history and everything like that. Could you, could, you, could you outline maybe some of the major pieces of evidence we have for this hymn and its historical uh, development?
1: Right. So this is indeed, it's kind of, um, you know, an absolute delight to liturgical scholars and historians, because very rarely do you have such testimony to a part of a service that goes back as early as we do. So there is an almost Certain reference to this very particular hymn in its form that we have, you know, in uh, St. Basil the Great, you know, who is writing uh, in the fourth century and referring to this, uh, the lighting of the lamps and the singing of this hymn as an ancient formula that, you know, even in his day right is it goes back so long that you can't remember where it came from so you know that gives some clues you know to how ancient this is but we have references even earlier you know in Clement of Alexandria and the in the uh, constitutions of the holy apostles um, to uh, which is a document you know from 3rd 4th century to the, the the greeting of the evening light and even the rubrics around that. So, you know, there's the kind of core part of Vespers here that we know is very ancient indeed. And curiously, we even have this pagan uh, reference uh, in history to the fact that you know, the ancient Greeks had a practice of greeting the evening lamp lighting with an exclamation of hail, good light, right? And uh, so it's all very plausible indeed, that this practice of the the, the kind of hearth and and homestead of, of the kind of ancient Greeks was brought into and merged with kind of the Jewish practice of worshiping at the nightly lighting of lamps in the temple and so forth in the tabernacle. And those two coming together in what is, you know, has this kind of ancient testimony to being a core part of Christian evening worship, of acknowledging the the, the gladsome light who is Christ and and turning to worship God at the time when the evening is is drawing in.
0: The next episode after that we'll be exploring the narrative trajectory or the narrative purpose of gladson light why is it where it is in vespers and what are we supposed to get out of why it's there and the question i want to ask you right now father jeffrey is uh, us you know when we go see a hollywood movie or or read a book it generally follows that that plot line of you know rising action inciting incident rising action climax Denouement, right? The 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 falling action, and it has kind of a very linear uh, frame. But there's also a structure that exists, particularly uh, in the scriptures, uh, which is called chiasm. That that um, the 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 punchline, so to speak, is in the middle, right? and that happens in kind of poetry, it can happen in stories, it can happen in structure. Uh, for example, um, the, it's been argued that the Harry Potter book series, the seven books, is actually structured chiastically, with the center being the fourth book and the climax of the fourth book in particular. Where, that's where the whole series turns. Um, but leaving, leaving Harry Potter aside, uh, Vespers, I have said this from the pulpit, so to speak, that Vespers is structured chiastically with gladsome light right in the middle. And, and the chiastic structure kind of points to gladsome light as being kind of a, the most important part of the service. Should I have said that? Am I wrong? Is that, a, is that an appropriate way of categorizing Vespers?
1: No, I, I think you're quite right. I, now, obviously, this is complicated uh, in terms of the overall structure of services when we start putting services together, right? So, vespers sometimes, you know, w- would be followed by, you know, matins and first hour as part of the the kind of all night vigil. It could sometimes be followed by, you know, a, a liturgy in the case of the eves of certain feasts and at the end of, of, of fast days and, and so forth. So some of what you've just said might be lost in the sense that, you know, it's only one part of a kind of larger whole. But if you just take Vespers on its own, there is no question that this is, this has kind of been, you know, an ascent up a mountain, and here is the mountaintop of light and transfiguration and so forth. And then from this point forward, there's a kind of move back, you know, into the world, a gathering and a dispersing, which is a kind of fundamental way that, you know, the narrative structure of, of worship works, because that's what what we're doing right we're we're coming together we and we get to a certain point and then from that point you know we're going to be asked to go back you know into the world and so you know it's represented by you know the all the lights being on at this point precisely at the end of the lamp lighting psalms and singing to the to to the light you know there's that moment that immediately follows in great vespers the uh, gladsome light where the 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 bishop who is now present who wasn't prior the senior you know uh you know, cleric turns and gives the peace, and we've emphasized that before too. Even narratively, how you know that is a climactic moment, one that we miss maybe more than uh, we should. In in kind, because of, in earlier liturgical understanding, that was you know an absolutely key moment of the service. So these go hand in hand. That kind of moment, you know, of the service. And, and then if you, it helps to understand everything that's happened narratively up to this point. You know, what we were seeing in those evening psalms, those lamplighting psalms that got us to this point. Well, all of that was a kind of drawing together. It was coming from these, you know, outer reaches of, of human experience. And, and, you know, you could be moving physically, geographically as part of this, but certainly psychologically from a place of you know, isolation, alienation in back into the the Christian community, which is what all of those Psalms, you know, represent. And so, you know, this, I think that seeing it kind of chiastically in that sense, you know, absolutely makes, you know, sense. Although, you know, many kind of smaller structures throughout, and then as I say, Vespers itself can be then kind of plunked into a larger, uh, superstructure of sorts. But it, we shouldn't miss the fact that as a service itself with, with a beginning and an end, that this is really the, the, that middle climactic moment.
0: And I want to speak a bit about that idea that Vespers is kind of a clear cut, clear cut kind of Hollywood plot, um, which we've, I came into recording this, um, I've came into doing this podcast project with you Father Jeffrey with that idea that Vespers ha- sort of has a clear beginning middle and an end and it, it it's structured like that kind of Hollywood narrative um you know creation fall redemption right and we've talked at length about how in in one sense you can definitely uh incorporate that kind of thinking into our perspectives on Vespers but on the other hand Vespers really if you look at it doesn't quite follow that pattern and I think that gladsome light like particularly in that this is the great climactic moment of Vespers. It happens right in the middle, which is quite different than a Hollywood movie where you don't put the huge climax in the middle and then let, you know, the last hour of the movie just go by without, uh, uh, without having another big climactic moment. Um, Yeah. I'm not sure I was going anywhere with a question with that father, Jeffrey, but you're, you can feel free to respond.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think you're, you're right. I mean, there is this effort, and and it's been a relatively recent one. You've know, talked about that before to to sort of see the a kind of whole sweep of salvation history being represented here, almost in a kind of dramatic depiction, right? So creation, fall, rede- and redemption or salvation, you know, through that. But you're right; then you would end here, right? If this were the if this were what were happening. I mean, we've also talked about that. As helpful as that might be in stirring up, you know, kind of, um, you know, recollection in people's minds about scriptural stories and so forth, it, it causes us to miss the, the more fundamental fact, which is that all of this is representative of our life now as already redeemed Christians, so that that creation account is actually more about God's ongoing creative work with us and intention for us, not about some distant past thing. And the the so-called fall framework of, you know, maybe principally represented by Lord, I have cried to you, hear me, and the, you know, the the evening Psalms and so forth. You know, if we are, if we're just assuming, well, that's pre-redemption, you know, that's the non-Christian and and then in the past somehow expressing that well then we are separating ourselves from the, the the more underlying reality and fundamental reality that actually these are the prayers of someone who is in the covenant community of faith who is already redeemed but who nevertheless is still having to move through this world with all of its struggle and suffering and you know experience of of, of trauma and isolation and everything and how do we how do we deal with that because that that idea that this is only dramatically being depicted for us, or that the narrative of this is only to kind of remind us of what was, but it's no longer the case. Really, you should be living at this moment of, oh, gladsome light of salvation all the time. And then we're just, as I say, kind of looking one to another and thinking, is that person not experiencing what I am? You know, clearly I'm not a good enough Christian because I still feel like the psalmist did, right? I must not be redeemed, which is far from the case. It is okay to be redeemed. It's okay to experience uh, temptation, nevertheless, and suffering, and to have to cry out and continually move, as the service invites us to do, back to the light of Christ, right? So it's a, It's actually, it's the ongoing experience. Nothing that happens in Vespers is happening for anyone other than those people who are already in God's covenant family and that i think has to be reiterated many a time because otherwise it just becomes kind of this illustrative symbolism or drama of the past and 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 then we're left with no bearings for how to actually navigate our own lives unless we happen to only live at the top of the mountain of transfiguration
0: The podcast you're listening to reflects only the public half of the overall project of Enacting the Kingdom. Father Jeffrey and I actively post new episodes on our completely separate private podcast. This private space gives us the freedom to debate and discuss open and sometimes controversial questions regarding the Orthodox faith amongst a smaller and more dedicated audience. If you become a patron now, you'll get immediate access to our growing backlog of private episodes, including a discussion on the ordination of women and the coronavirus multiple spoon controversy. To get access to this private podcast, go to pryingpriest.com. Looking forward to having you join our growing community on Patreon. Now back to the show. The next lens is the narrative participation. Now, I would like to maybe focus on here just on, uh, as many of our listeners know through experience or through listening to the podcast, that there's actually a couple of different uh, uh, ways of enacting Vespers, right? There's great Vespers, there's little Vespers. Can you maybe go through the difference of what physically happens at little Vespers at this point of the service? And then what physically happens during great vespers at this point of the service?
1: Right. So from a liturgical enactment or you know ritual point of view the the big difference of course is is there an entrance and and actually in a lot of liturgical books or you know manuals, that's how they distinguish you know little and great vespers. There's other changes that take place, and we've referred to some of those as as we've gone through, but you know to say vespers with an entrance is to say everything you need to say, and so what that means is that towards the end of the lamp lighting psalms with those interpolated you know verses from the hymns of the day whether those be from the book of eight tones the octoichos or the lenten triodian or the menean you know there's different ways of com- combining those depending on what kind of day it is but towards the end of those if it's a great Vesper service the there will be an entrance with the censer and so that the deacon will carry that out if there's a deacon otherwise the presbyter will will come out and, and you know that could be a, accompanied by taper bears you know and so forth and that's an entrance to the the middle of the church and then uh, there's the prayer of of the evening that is prayed a blessing of the entrance and then at the moment of oh Gladsome light the entrance is made you know through the the central doors of the iconostasis back into the altar and then you know the, as I said, the lights are on, you know, and the peace will be given after that. and there will often be Old Testament readings that that follow, uh, certainly a perkeemonon in any case, and then uh, Old Testament readings on the eaves of certain feasts and, and so forth. So there's a kind of whole ritual uh, that surrounds that kind of climactic moment of, O oh glad some light. when it's when there's Vespers without an entrance, that is to say, just daily Vespers, then the the hymn is still sung. Um, or could just be, you know, read or chanted straight, depending on the the, the kind of local practice. Uh, but there's no entrance, and uh, the presbyter will just simply come out in front of the iconostasis, following some light, and and pronounce the prokimenon from from that uh, point. But there's no giving of the peace. There's no. no you know, grand ceremony surrounding um, that entrance. I should say one more thing. I mean, if if there's a liturgy to follow, the entrance will actually be made with the gospel book instead of with the censer. And so that happens, say, on the eve of Christmas or theophany, um, on a feast of annunciation if it falls during the week uh, weekday during Lent, um, also on Holy Thursday and Holy Saturday. Those kinds of vesper liturgies, you get to this point in vespers and you're kind of transition shortly after into the liturgy or divine liturgy part and the gospel book will be brought in the entrance because the gospel of course will be read at the beginning of the liturgy portion
0: and let's transition to the people that are gathered in in the congregation what are people supposed to do in terms of the liturgical participation how 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 are people best how are they to best participate?
1: I would say that you know, and certainly in non-pandemic times, uh, when we're allowed to be singing together, it, one of the best things to do is to learn the words of "Faux of "O and Light," um, in whatever languages that that you you sing that uh, in your church. I mean, it, it is one of those hymns that everyone should have um, off by heart, and and to sing that as 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 you know gustily as lustily as as full-throatedly as they possibly can uh, it is it's a high moment and uh we can uh, imagine it has been so you know from the very beginning we talked about how ancient this hymn is and and to know that the words that we're singing here are the words of The saints through the ages—they're the the words that that join us together with so many Christians throughout, you know, time and space. Um, I I think that that's that's a really important thing to to kind of understand. So, as much as anything else changes, and the the rhythms of of the liturgical year obviously, you know, make changes to the different parts of hymns. We can't possibly you know know the menaeanof by heart or the octoechos things like that but here is something that this unchanging heart of the service is so beautiful that that we can always join you know in in with that Of in, in terms of the entrance itself you know uh one of the things that um is often uh, done or is called for we don't often see this but uh you know, if you're part of the choirs and 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 the kind of, the typicon assumes there are two choirs uh you know on each side of the church that one of the physical things that is is done is that they come together in the center of the church and so uh, that might be something in in a way that uh we could somehow you know certainly in churches that aren't you know people imprisoned in pews and 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 can never move around but if you have the chance of moving around this idea of not only singing together in this way but but physically moving towards the center of the church to sing, I think it would be quite beautiful. And that would be representative of, of what people have done uh, f- uh, since time immemorial, you know, for, for this hymn.
0: All right. And the last aspect, the last lens that we look at this through is enacting the kingdom. How do we make a oh, gladsome light real in our daily lives? And it seems to me that especially given, you know, the pandemic, and that people are living at home. At, at least at the time of this recording, uh, where we are living, we are in full lockdown. I even got an emergency notification on my phone. So stay in your house. Don't leave if you don't have to. It's the law. We're watching. So we're yes, Big Brother is watching. <laughs> the this, the Justin Trudeau sent me a text, and it's the all-seeing eye.
1: Um,
0: and uh, so. I guess how do you bring how can we actively bring o oh, gladsome light this hymn and what it stands for how can we actively bring that into our home in our everyday life
1: Well what we will go on to say in in the episode in this series is that this is actually relatively straightforward in the sense that this part of the church liturgical service of the practice in the community is derived originally from home practice, right? So the the idea that homes gathered together when evening set in and the cold was drawing uh, close, you know, we, we, for protection, for light, for warmth, people gathered together in one central place and they lit a lamp and they gathered around that. Well, it's something we've we've missed. Over the last century or so, where you know we've just made our world an artificial world of of light, central light and central heat, and, and so forth, but if we could find little ways, little rituals that could help us to reconnect with, with some of that, it would be helpful, uh, spiritually, psychologically. Uh, it would help us to, to develop the church, the, 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 the house rather as a little church, which is what we're called to do, uh, to connect us again to, to the worship of, of the church community. Uh, you know, if we had that, if that was our regular practice, then in times of, you know, societal crisis like we're currently living in you know christians will be a little less on the you know back foot and and worried about you know what are we going to do how can we live if we can't get to church well the reality is christians in centuries gone past you know didn't you know they just didn't cut their stride, right? It didn't, they were able to carry on because they did live that at, at home and the connection with church was there. And yeah, if churches happen to be closed for a period, that's okay. We'll just keep going at home with what we are already doing that is connected deeply with what goes on in, in the church. So so we, it would be good to reconnect ourselves uh, as households, as homes, as families to church practice in this way. And as I say, in this case, it's come from home practice in the first place. It, you know, The scriptural description of this and and the the ritual that we have in the liturgy is derived from what people do, you know, in their homes. And, uh, you know, we just, we stopped doing that in our homes, but it's maybe high time that we reconnected, you know, with that.
0: And before we finish this preview, Father Jeffrey, I'm hoping you could share what's, you know, one thing that you hope that our listeners get from this series on and Light.
1: Oh, what a wonderful question. (laughs) Um, I I think, you know, it. maybe that kind of last thought there that, you know, this and and where we get to when we get to the, you know, the enacting the kingdom, you know, part of all of this, that, you know, we really do live in a world where, you know, and this goes to the, what we said too about the, just seeing Vespers as a kind of drama or a, a movie about salvation history rather than something that's fundamental to our experience. Here we're getting to the heart of, of it all, right? Here we're getting to the, the fact that we not only acknowledge and name the dark as an issue, and all of the things that the darkness brings, and that's that's literal and figurative. It's you know it, it's it's the the darkness of the the natural world around us that we should be more aware of, but also the fact that we are all of us still living in a world of darkness. But into that darkness, the light came, and that's the unique insight of Christianity, which is highlighted here. Right, the world is dark, the world, and and people love the darkness. It says. Our Lord said to Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, people preferred the darkness to the light. And that's the reality of what we have to live with. And so often we too are tempted, you know, to, in our experience of the darkness, to prefer the darkness to the light. But here at the central act of, of Vespers is this sacramental rejection or transcending, really, of the darkness in the acknowledgement of Christ as the true light. And if we can learn to do that, not only in Vespers, in church, not only in an evening ritual of some kind in our own families and homes where we gather together and and turn to Christ as the light, then that will become our habit, our, our virtue with this kind of habit that leads towards the kingdom in every aspect of our life. There'll be no darkness that can ever come to us or that we experience where light cannot transcend and transform it. That's the unique thing that Christianity brings. It's this capacity to turn darkness into light. It's a sacramental action of God that we can learn to live and experience in our lives. And ultimately, that's how we can cope with death and illness and sickness and unemployment and and poverty and all of the kind of systemic issues of, of of racism and and so forth that our society has it's not by ignoring them it's not by finding a program to to address them it's by in the midst of them acknowledging where the light truly is it's an act of hope and faith and love and and it's if we can learn to do that through Vespers, then we are you know, doing what we're supposed to do as those who are called after the name of Christ, who is the true light.
0: You've just finished listening to another public episode of Enacting the Kingdom. If you're getting value from this podcast and you'd like to support the show, you can head over to pryingpriest.com to become a patron. Also, five-star ratings with written reviews go a long way to getting the word out there about this show. Also, since enacting the kingdom is social media free, any word of mouth recommendations you can make to your friends and family would be greatly appreciated. We'll see you next time.